We stand now for the reading of God's word. It comes from Philippians as we start our new series. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God's help. Uh, Father, thank you for, for your word that you speak into our, our lives through, through your scriptures. And so this evening, as we, uh, we all come in with different things on our hearts and minds, and, and God, we need your spirit to speak into, into us. And so I pray you would do that. God, whatever, whatever questions we walk in with, whatever things that are burdening our hearts now, would you, would you take the next, the next several minutes, God, and speak to those through your scriptures. We pray all this. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the happiest day of your life? Uh, The day when you are most filled with with joy. And hopefully you have a a few options that you could could potentially pick from. At least not just one uh, day. But as I I thought through my own life, what what are the happiest days of of my life? The days that came to mind for me were were first uh, my sophomore year in high school. I, I won our county golf tournament by making like this 70-foot putt on this, the next to last hole. I birdied it, made, it was pretty clear I was going to win, and heard my dad just yell for, yell for joy because I made this incredibly long putt. I think of that day. I think of things, believe it or not, even more important than golf, like, like my marriage to my wife, Misty. That's a day. I think of the birth of my four for kids, those days being just these days full of joy. Um, and I also think of, of this day, taking a photo taken with me uh, in my, I was with the rest of my family was with me that day in, in Lawrence, Kansas. It was a rare Sunday off. We went to Lawrence, we worshiped in a church uh, together. We went and had brunch at my favorite breakfast place in the world, which that's my, that's my go-to meal is breakfast. I just, I love, I eat breakfast all three meals a day. We had brunch together, we laughed together, we had this day uh, together, and I thought of that day as, as one of the most joyful days, but that day is, is strange in compared to the rest, because six days before this day, we learned that our, our oldest son has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which uh, was a devastating uh, news to hear, a life-altering condition that was incredibly serious, and, and that week was, was the worst week of my life, by far. 
Capped by a day, I would say, is one of the, the most joyful days of my life, this day in Lawrence, Kansas. Why is that? Why, my guess for many of us, uh, if we were to think of our most joyful days, they might come in proximity to some of our hardest moments as well. Why is that? And this morning we're beginning uh, a 10-week series on the book of Philippians we're calling Return to Joy. So we're going to talk about joy for the next 10 weeks. And my guess is I don't have to do a ton of work to convince you that joy is a relevant topic to your, your life, that you should want to be a more joy-filled or happy person. Especially in, in this moment. Like I, I thought about, like, let's begin with a bunch of statistics about how our culture is not marked by joy in this moment. How angry we are, how depressed we are, how anxious we are, how mad we are at everyone else around us. But I'm, I guess you're already there, right? You probably, maybe you got on social media for 10 minutes and are like, okay, I, I'm getting off this thing. I'm guessing, I don't have to convince you, we maybe have a bit of a joy deficit in our own Culture, And so we're going to spend the next 10 weeks just, just asking the questions, what, what is joy? Why are we losing it? And how do we get it back? In fact, that sounds like a good sermon for tonight, doesn't it? What is joy? Why are we losing it? And how do we return to it? That is the sermon for tonight. So first, what is, what is joy? So as I mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Philippians as we think through this together. And anyone, any commentator, theologian who's done work on the book of Philippians would say one of the primary themes of Philippians is joy. The Greek word for joy shows up frequently throughout the book. The, the, the verbal form for the word joy, rejoice, shows up frequently throughout the book. Anyone who has read the book of Philippians study it would say joy is a primary theme in the book. And so I just... To start, a little bit of a quiz, both to kind of learn some new information as well as just to get our mind right for the, the book, is to ask, where did Paul write this? Right? If Paul has this just like joy-filled mind, where do you think Paul wrote this letter from? So there's a little three-choice quiz. See if you can get it right. Uh, choice A is Paul wrote this from the city of Thessalonica. That name might sound familiar, First and Second Thessalonians, a church was there. Paul was very close to that church. And, and doing some work with that church, he had a, he had a great Thessalonican meal one evening, uh, strolled along the Mediterranean Sea as the sun was setting, and just thought, man, what a beautiful setting. My heart is just full of the joy of the Lord. I want to write to my friends back in Philippi about joy. That's, that's choice A. Choice B uh, is that Paul and a few of his close, closest friends went to this all-inclusive resort in Jamaica <laughs> where all of their drinks and food and lodging, it was all paid for. And at the end of that week of all-inclusive, just being pampered, Paul and his friend, like, listen, hey, we've been working hard for the Lord, but this has been a good week. Now let's, let's sit down and write about joy to our, our friends back in Philippi. That's choice B. Choice C is this Roman prison cell. It's dark, it's dank, no sunlight allowed in, very intentionally. And Paul spent a long time there, not being sure that the next time he saw the sun would be to, to be led to his own execution. All right, so think it over. A, B, C, I'll give you a second, I'll count to three, then shout out what your answer is. All right, ready? One, two, three. C. It's actually B. It was, it was an all-inclusive... <laughs> Jamaican was no, it was he wrote this letter on joy from prison. So the first thing you and I need to take from that is is joy. If you want to be a person of increased joy in your life, 
The path forward is not to change your circumstances. It's not to find a better job. It's not to find a new house. It's not to find uh, new relationships. That will not help you. I mean, it might a little bit for a moment, but it will not, it's not a sustaining response to having a life of joy. And this isn't just a biblical idea. This is uh, in, in her book, uh, The How of Happiness, Sonia Lubomirsky just did a bunch of research on studies done around happiness, what makes us happy. And, and one of her key conclusions is circumstances do not create happiness for us. And what she says is basically all of us, we have a number of things that make us happy or unhappy. For us, it's about 50% genetics, right? So some of you just woke up, you, you just wake up and like life is good. And that's, that's you, that's your, you're just happy all the time. Uh, then 40% of, of happiness is what you and I can affect. And she says about 10% is circumstances. That 10% of your happiness is based on circumstances. But the problem is that, that 10% is very volatile because we human beings have what is called hedonic adaptation, which means the moment you and I encounter a circumstance that makes us happy, we immediately become used to it and it no longer makes us happy. So you get a raise, you think, man, this extra, this extra 100 bucks a week, that's a big deal. And then you spend that extra hundred bucks and it's no longer a big deal. You just need, you need that. Now you need the next hundred bucks, right? Or you have, uh, you, you know, a, jo- a job is not making you very happy. And then, and you want to get, get rid of the people that are around you. So you go to a new job and you're around other people and they're great for a year. And then you realize these people are just like the last people that I worked with and I didn't. Like, right? it's, in other words, it, we become used to new settings that made us happy and then they no longer make us happy. So circumstances are not a way to make yourself happy more, or to, to, to be more filled with joy. And, and what's interesting is throughout the book, uh, Sonia tries to make this point again and again. She says, even I am a researcher. I know this doesn't work. And yet I find myself increasingly convinced, well, maybe this circumstance is actually the problem. And if I change this, then I will be happy. And to be clear, there are some circumstances, you know, that, that do need to be changed to lead to happiness. But, but the overall theme that you just need a little bit more, more money. You just, need a, you just need a week in Jamaica. No, that, that will not work to give you a lasting happiness, a lasting joy. So the question then becomes, what is joy? Because a good definition of joy will help us go down a path that will fill us more with joy and happiness. So what is joy? And I'm going to give you my definition, but I, listen, you're probably not going to like it. Or you might like it and you think it's great and it warms your, your heart and that's awesome. And you'll be with me for the rest of the sermon. But my guess is you may hear it and think, this is dumb. I don't like this. I want, I want my money back. Right? That, that may be what you think. And that's okay if, if that's what you think. Just, just give me the chance through the rest of the sermon to make my, make my case. Because my definition for joy comes from a, a UCLA professor named Dr. Alan Shore. Who, uh, who is called the Einstein of Psychiatry. He did a, a three-volume work on our brains and how our brains are motivated by joy. So his, his, one of his basic ideas is we're either motivated by fear or joy, and he wanted to know what causes human beings to experience joy that would motivate them into a better life. So this is brain science research. This is a very dry guy, Alan Shore, and this is his definition for joy. Joy is when someone is glad to be with me, or joy is when someone's face lights up to see me. It's okay if that, if that doesn't land with you yet. Just, just, just hang with me for a minute. Um, that, let's go to the, the first use of joy in Philippians. And here it is, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
So Paul is in a prison, he's in a prison cell. He is in a dark, dank place, and he's praying for his friends in Philippi, and he's filled with joy. As he remembers the relationships in his life, he is filled with joy. That joy, according to, to, to Alan Shore and what we're going to find out through the, the rest of Philippians, joy is primarily a relational thing. It is not experiential. You don't need a new experience for joy. You don't need a new circumstance for joy. Joy is relational. And so again, this is, listen, if you don't like that definition, that's okay. But, but remember, this is based on a very, like a very scientific guy based on research. Um, that not just his own kind of, here's, here's what my vibes put out, what I think joy is. This, is. this is based on how he saw the brain respond. And what he saw was, when we encounter other people who are glad to be with us, that's what, that's what brings joy to our, to our human body, to our brain System. But this also tracks very well with a key scripture from the Old Testament. One of the most quoted testament or scriptures in the Hebrew Bible is Numbers 6. It is the quintessential benediction. Benediction meaning good word. And it was, it was a good word spoken over God to his people who were in covenant relationship with him. This was to be a word of blessing to them. Number 6. And what does number 6 say? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious toward you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, which is another word for face. May the Lord lift up his face toward you and give you peace. Or as Eugene Peterson translated in the message, which is a really good capture of the Hebrew, may God bless you and keep you. God smile on you and gift you. God look you full in the face and make you prosper. The most quoted blessing benediction in the Bible is about God's face lighting up towards you. Him lifting up his face and smiling upon you. That's the, that is it. That is the, the most quoted, maybe the most quoted text in all of the Hebrew Bible. And Alan Shore would say, joy is someone else lighting up to, to see you. Including God. And so, where we begin then is, if, is, is joy is relational. It's first relationship with God. You need to know, like God, you need to know that's God's posture towards you, but it's also other people. Joy is relational. So, if you want to increase your joy, it's about relationships, it's about the relational realities to your life. So, if that's what joy is, then why are we losing it? So, uh, I. I sort of, uh, a few years, a couple of years ago, ran through the book of Philippians, sort of what we're going to do over the next few weeks with a group of people, uh, but it was more interactive than a sermon was, and, and I, I shared that definition of joy with them. And they, normally we had great interactions, and they, they kind of, you know, they added up, up the teaching, we had great back and forth, but for whatever reason, when I shared that definition of joy with them, it was just, it was a, it was a cold room in that moment. It was just, I just got some icy stares, and basically like, I don't like, that's a dumb definition. And that was essentially the feedback. And one of the people who gave me that feedback, her name is Vicki, always brilliant, always had really perceptive uh, feedback to give. She said, I don't like that definition because it's very, it sounds very selfish, right? And, and what she meant was when, when, uh, when we say joy is when someone is, is glad to be with me, it almost sounds like, you know, jo- what joy is, is I walk in the room and all of y'all are, are just like, yes, Tim is here, finally someone to give our attention to because the most important person is here. And that's what joy is, when you all see very rightly that I'm the most important person in this room and you should all direct your engage and smile at me. That is what, I think that's how Vicki read it, but that's not, that's not how Alan Shore means it. In fact, uh, he actually means the precise opposite of, 
of that. What he's saying is, actually, I'm, that's a very selfish vision of joy. What it means is, I can't find joy on my own. I actually need other people. I need the gaze and the joy of other people towards me in order to be a person of joy. And what's interesting to me is, is actually Shore's definition of joy is the precise opposite of what our culture would say is the means by which we find joy. That our cultural vision of joy is, is find what's inside of yourself, what you want to do, what your desires are, what your preferences are, and do those, live those out, and it doesn't matter what other people say to you. It doesn't matter what other people think. Don't let anyone who's religious hold you back. Don't let anyone tell you what to think, do, whatever. You decide for yourself what your life should be, and that's what will make you happy. Your happiness and joy comes at the expense and at the, uh, uh, ignoring the people and their gaze towards you. Uh, and this is something that's, this is the water in which we, we swim, right? This isn't, this isn't just something a few people hold out there. You and I are, are pounded with that message every day. The key to your happiness is that you get your way, is that you look within, you know what's right, you know what's best at the expense of everyone else around you. And so there's a, a political theorist named Mark Lilla, and he says that's the, basically the animate, the one thing that the right and the left agree on is this. He says that the key towards to human flourishing that everyone in the West thinks is to give individuals maximum freedom in every aspect of their lives and all will be well. So you, the, if you want to be happy, you need to have maximum individual freedom. In short, saying, no. You need the joy and the gaze of others towards, towards you. And that's a very conflicting message. And I think it's a part of why we're losing joy. Because first, what, I mean, listen, if, if, if your operating principle in life is, I don't really care what anyone else thinks around me, I'm just going to do what I want, there's not going to be a ton of people with a gaze of joy to be around you. You're not going to be a fun presence to be around, let's just put it that way. But more than that, what it means is you and I keep thinking that if I get, if I get my way, that will bring me joy, and it doesn't work. And I want to be really clear, I think there's probably, we can all probably here as Christians think, okay, well, I see that outside the church. Right? I want to live this lifestyle, and I'm going to live this lifestyle at the expense of, of any other tradition or any other voice in my life, and that's going to make me happy. But this, this vision is very much a part of the way Christians view the church as well. As a theologian, uh, theologian Scott McKnight, he says this, Contemporary Christianity has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and supplanted it with experience, desire, and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedoms. One way that's worked itself out, when we first planted Shawnee, one, one thing that a leader said to me was, Tim, you need to know who your customers are, and you need to provide them the product they want so that you grow and people come back. So is that, are we a target? Like, is that, is that what we're doing? Like, that, that's not what I signed up for when I became a pastor, is, is I'm going to give a product, and, and yet that's how, listen, isn't that how the church often works? We're offering you a product, and as long as the product is up to snuff, we're, we're, you and I, we're good. The moment the product's a little, a little bit not what we want anymore, um, then, then there's questions. Now, to be clear, when we're, like, contradicting the Bible and, like, not teaching the truth, and all of that, that's a different deal, right? That's, that is the problem. But the Bible's not our final authority often. It, it is our preference. It's our experience. It's what we want out of church. And what, beca- what begins to happen in the church becomes to, begins to be a product, one more product we consume, instead of a people to whom we belong. Instead of a community to whom we say, I need joy and you're the community I have chosen. 
that you look me back and say, I'm glad to be with you, and me towards you. So why are we losing joy? Here's my answer for tonight. And there's lots, there's lots of good answers to that question, but why we're a, such a non-joy culture is our unchecked pursuit of personal freedom cuts us off from the source of joy, which is other people. Meaningful, long-lasting community. So let's, let's go back to Philippians 1. Again, Paul's first uh, mention of, of joy is he's in this prison. He's praying for these Philippians, and he's filled with joy as he calls to mind the people he knows very well. And there's a lot of relational history behind that statement. You need to go back. You need to read Acts 16, how the church in Philippi was planted. But even how we got this letter, Philippians, in the first place is a powerful story of the deep connection between Paul and this church. The how we got Philippi is the, the, the church in Philippi found out that Paul was in prison in Rome. And they decided, we've got to go encourage Paul. This is a long journey. This is a long and dangerous journey to send anyone from Philippi to Rome, but they do it. They send a man named Epaphroditus to Rome to go and visit Paul to encourage him. But what happens on the way is Epaphroditus gets incredibly sick and almost dies. Almost loses his life. But then he recovers and he doesn't go back to Philippi. He completes his journey to Paul. That's how badly Paul needed to encourage us. Hey, man, I almost died, and I may still die, but I'm, I'm getting to Paul to encourage him. And so Epaphroditus gets to Paul. He tells him this story. I got, man, I got here. It took me a while. I almost died. And Paul's like, dude, you got to go back. People in Philippi are wondering about you. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi so that they know Paul was doing okay, and Epaphroditus is okay as well. And he sends this letter, Philippians, back with Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. So even this letter is a sign of this deep connection between Paul and this church and that they cared deeply to encourage him while he was in prison. They had this man take this long journey just to go to Paul and pray with him and encourage him and be with him in that dark, dank prison cell. And if you read on uh, into Philippians, we know the Philippians gave generously to Paul and his mission. There was a financial commitment to them. There was a, a personal encouragement commitment to them. This is a, a very deep connection between Paul and Philippi, all because they have, neither one of them are pursuing their own autonomy apart from one another, but both have denied themselves in really powerful, profound ways to love each other. So to have joy, your, your personal autonomy and preferences have to take a back seat to others. The best way to find your happiness is not to have your preferences met, but to love others. The joy ultimately requires the denial of self-autonomy. So I've given one way that that's, that's worked itself out, maybe in the church context, that often we just view church as kind of another, one more product to consume. But there's, a, there's another way, and I want to I I push in a little bit to what is a really tough area to push into because we're all so raw on this. But I want to talk about pandemics. Uh, Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, would say the reason the early church grew so exponentially is their response to the third century plague that happened. The church at that point maybe had a few million believers throughout the Roman Empire. But over the next hundred years, uh, the church would go from a small persecuted minority to the dominant religion in Rome. And it was so dominant that the, the emperor of the day, Constantine, actually made it the official state religion of Rome. It's either because he got converted to Christianity genuinely, which I, I tend to think. I think, I think he was converted. 
um, or at least he became very uh, open to Christianity. But ultimately, what people would say is he was just acknowledging political reality. It's like, most of my people are Christians, and if I'm a Christian, that makes things much easier on me, because that's how fast Christianity had grown. And Stark says the reason the church grew was that most of Roman culture responded to the plague by fleeing to the hills, by if someone in their family got sick, kicking that person out onto the street to keep their own home safe from disease. And it led to basically people who were literally dying in the streets, the sick and the vulnerable had no one to care for them. And Christians came along and cared for vulnerable people, cared for the sick and the dying. That's actually where we got hospitals from, is the church felt like there should be a place for sick people to go and die with dignity or to be cared for in their final moments or to be cared for to be restored back to health. And so there was a, a Christian bishop named Dionysus uh, from this day who, who, def, who basically defined the two qualities that Christians had in response to the plague. Here's what he said. Heedless of danger, they, the Christians, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need. The Christians had two qualities to their response in the third century. One was they were heedless to danger. Because of their belief in the resurrection, they didn't think death was the end. And so when they saw someone dying in the streets, their thought wasn't, i got to protect my own because there's one life, you know, YOLO. That's, that's not what the, the response was. I have to go and serve. I'm going to be raised from the dead anyway. I'm going to go serve that person. But they didn't use that bravery and courage to say, right, like, I can do what I want now because, you know, I can die and it's all going to be good. No, they used that brave and courage. The second quality that was true of them, they took charge of the sick, attending to their need. They looked at vulnerable people in the moment of the pandemic and plague, and they said, what do, these, what do the vulnerable need? And we'll provide it. They were fearless and courageous and brave, but not for their own personal freedom, for the vulnerable. And what I feel like, you know, we're a year in, I feel like I've, 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 I've enough to make some comment on the church response to the pandemic. And I think most Christians have gotten one of those two pieces. Either it's, dude, resurrection, we don't need to fear death, right? Let's be brave, we're heedless to danger. But that's also, often led to not, not service of the vulnerable, but for, so therefore I can live out my personal vision of what I want to do in this moment. I don't need to be afraid of the pandemic, so I, I want to keep living in this way. Or people have been really, really concerned about caring for the vulnerable. And, and at times maybe even a little bit too overly cautious and not quite heedless to danger. Now I know I'm, I'm, I'm vastly summarizing two very complex positions. Um, but what I do want to say is we should have both responses. We believe in the resurrection, which means we are heedless to danger. Not unwisely so. I was like, don't, don't go lick a telephone pole. I'm not saying that. But we're heedless of danger, and yet that bravery and that courage, what is, it, what is it used for? To deny my personal rights, to serve the vulnerable. The early church, when they displayed those two things, exploded in growth. And I listen, I think one reason we're not exploding in growth is because I think Christians are doing one of those two things very loudly, very, <laughs> very in their own way, and people are like, I, we don't find that message compelling. So let's have both, a bravery and courage, not so that we can go out and live our personal freedom like everyone else is doing, so we use that freedom to serve and love people in this moment who need our service and love. So why are we, uh, why are we losing joy? It's because we're, we think we get it through personal happiness, personal autonomy, and we don't. 
And then thirdly, finally, okay, then how do we get joy back? How do we return to, to joy? And I want to say three things um, about that. First is you need a community that is glad to be with you if you're going to have joy. You need a community that is glad to be with you. So Paul in verse 3 says, I'm, 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 when I start praying for you, I'm filled with joy. And it makes me, well, he, what does he pray for them? And he tells us in verse 9 what his prayer is for them, which is a great thing to pray for us as a church. He says, and it is, it is my prayer, verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I want to I see your love for one another increase. That is my prayer for you. Uh, when I was in seminary in Chicago, I worked, I worked two jobs while also a seminary student, which is a full-time deal as it was. So I had a very full, very full schedule. Um, and it made church involvement really difficult. Um, I, was, I was a worship leader at a church. That was one of my jobs. But it, it just made like, being in community, actually, with people very, very difficult. Um, and, and sort of toward, towards the end of my time there, I realized like, we really need to have deeper community here, but there was only one two-hour window in my entire week where I knew my, my Starbucks job would not schedule me, uh, my seminary tasks would not take me, and my, my church job would not, would not uh, affect me. And it was only two hours. It was between 12 and 2 on Sunday afternoon. And I did not want to do that because I led worship in the morning, which was like, got there at 6.30, left right at noon, and then got to my, our condo, and that's where we, we led our group. And then at 2.30, I had to go to my Starbucks evening shift from 2.30 to 9. So I started with, with a pretty long day, and I wanted those two hours to, like, take a nap or, you know, just think my thoughts. Like, I just wanted two hours to myself, but those are the only two hours I knew I could be in community with others. And so we decided, let's, okay, let's, let's do that. Um, and we did that. And listen, it was, that was a powerful experience, but it was not because of the food, because uh, our group was, like, largely seminary students, which meant everyone just brought a loaf of bread. This is like, you just had eight slices of bread for lunch, uh, which is not a great, like, pre-Starbucks uh, shift meal. It's just like, it's, I'm just eating a lot of bread. That's all I'm eating, because that's all people bring. Uh, it was, you know, oftentimes I had to lead that discussion or lead that group from, uh, after leading worship all morning. So it's not like the leader was this super dynamic, like, hey, guys, let's ask questions, and I'm just going to lead you really well. This is like, I'm tired, and i got to go to Starbucks and, you know, deal with people and their co- coffee issues in a couple hours. So I'm just, I'm not, the leader wasn't great, the food wasn't great, and yet it was two hours every week where people were just committed to me and my family, to my wife and I, to our our young son at the time, committed to us, they loved us, they were glad to be with us, and that became a space of joy. And here's the thing, in our own cultural moment, where you have endless opportunities to fill your calendar, Right? To pursue your personal pleasure. I mean, you just, we, got, we got tons of opportunities to do whatever we want. That often the first thing to be removed from our calendar is that space of deepened joy with fellow Christians in community. In worship on Sunday, with a group during the week. And that becomes, you know, I don't have time for that because I have X, Y, and Z. And the reality is that means you never end up with a group of people around you who are glad to be with you. Because you don't have enough time to be around those People. You need, if you want to be a more joy-filled person, you've got to find the people you make a priority, especially Christians, who will be the, the people who are glad to be with you. That's first. You need a community that's glad to be with you. And secondly, you need to discern what is excellent. And with that, what I mean by that is we all have ideas of what we think will give us joy, right? Like Sonia Lubomirsky, she says, I know circumstances won't bring me joy, and even though I'm like a scientist, researcher, I still get back to, but maybe this is the circumstance that needs to be. No, we always end up drifting into believing things will bring us joy that won't. So we need to be able to discern. We need to be able to look at something and say, no, 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 that will not bring me joy. This will. So how does that happen? And Paul's very explicit about how that happens. 
how we come to be people who discern what is excellent. So, verse 9, he says what his prayer is, what he's praying for the church is, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, what he says is, I'm praying that your love may abound more and more, and when it does, what's going to happen is you're going to then be able to approve what is excellent because you're going to be in a community of love, and that community is going to help you be able to discern what will bring you joy and what will not. In other words, if you want to know what will bring you joy, you need a community of people to help you discern what is true and what is, what is not. Which isn't how we typically think, right? We all tend to think, no, 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 I'm an independent thinker. And I take it, what everyone else says, and I think, I think through it very rationally. I read the articles I need to read. I listen to the voice. And I, then I come to a very rationalistic conclusion. And there's a guy named Alan Jacobs. He wrote a book called How to Think. He's like, no, no one does that. No one thinks independently. We all have a community of people that inform the way we think. We all have people we listen to that inform the way we think. No one is an independent thinker. And what I want, what I want to do this evening is just invite you to ask, who is the community of people that inform your thinking? Who are you paying attention to? All right, well, the podcasts you listen to, the, the television shows you, you watch, the radio shows you, you turn on. The, who are the voices? Who's your community of thinkers that lead you into what you think? And, and I, I just want to invite you to ask four questions of all of those things. This is actually, this, this is pulled from Philippians 4. Um, but four questions about your community of people who are encouraging you to think. Or, or leading you to think what you think. First is, do they lead you to beauty? Right, I want to listen to people who, when they get done talking, are like you get a little joy in your heart. Like there's, there's some, they, they pointed out something that, that is good, that's beautiful, that's right. Do they lead you towards beauty? Second, do they lead you towards truth? There are a lot of people saying a lot of things. And is what they care most about getting to the truth or getting their agenda across? And so Hannah Anderson, in her book, All That's Good, she points out, we're just, we just have a hard time discerning truth anymore. And here's what she says about that. She says, it's not simply that we have too much information. It's that we have too little shared reality. Like the characters in a mystery, we don't know what is true and what isn't. We can't agree on who is an expert and who isn't. So more often than not, we simply craft our own reality and can't be bothered with whether we share it with anyone else. That there are people who, who want to lead us into their own reality that then exclude many other people who don't share that reality as if they don't exist. You should be skeptical of people like that. Third, and this, this, this legitimately liquidated half of my podcast feed, are they worthy of your respect? The people you listen, do you want to be like them? Because whoever you pay attention to is who you're becoming like. Right? What we, who we are is what we pay attention to. So again, when I moved to Chicago, I moved from Indianapolis uh, which we had, you know, so I always listen, love listening to sports talk radio. And it was very different once I got to Chicago. Because everyone on sports talk radio in Chicago is angry all the time. 
It doesn't matter if the season's going great or the season's not going. They're all always angry because if they're angry, it's not going better than it should get. And it's just, I like, after two months, like, I just felt like I drive. And I, listen, I always drive like a bit of a crazy person. But it's like, I'm just like, this is not, like, I'm angry right now. Why am I angry? The Cubs won last night. Why am I so mad at the world? And it's because the people I'm listening to, they're mad all the time. And listen, I'll, I'll get a little free on, on Sunday evening. But I, a lot of what I see on television, on radio, on, they're just angry all the time. And I, listen, if you want to be around angry people, that's your deal. I don't. People who always, they know who their enemies are. They're always talking about them. They're always upset. They're always mad. I just, when you fill yourself with that, there's no path forward but anger. Do you want to be an angry person? Don't listen to angry people if you don't want to be an angry person. Is the voices you're listening to, are they worthy of your respect? Do you look at them and say, I want to live life the way they live life? What a beautiful way they live life. That's question three. And then question four is, are they flesh and blood people who look you back in the face? Right, so much of our, our, our thinking now happens with people we don't know and we'll never meet. And actually, I want to make a commitment to you because this is one of my hopes for our, for our community is is your voice will always be more important to me than any, any voice of a podcast I listen to, any voice of a book I read. I care far more what, what's going on in your life than these people that, that help me think, they help me, like, I'm not saying don't read any books or listen to podcasts, but like, I'm interested in the people that sit across from me and asking them, hey, who are you? Uh, what do you want in life? Who do you think Jesus is? It's really hard to get to that conversation when the people whose voices most matter to us aren't interested in those questions. And it's really important that the people who inform your thinking actually can, can sit across the table from you, can say, hey, I think you're wrong. I think you're, I think you're in a bad, you're moving down a bad path. And they also need to be people who bring you joy because they look at you and they're just glad to hear what you think. They want to hear what you think. They're, they're engaged in your own thinking, your own Life. And so again, Hannah Anderson in her books, All That's Good, points out this like discernment has to happen in a real community. Paul says, I want your love to grow more and more so that you are able to approve what is excellent. Right? You grow in love for one another, then you're able to see what's good, what's excellent. So Hannah Anderson says, the fact that discernment comes in and through community also means that we should be suspicious of people who refuse to submit themselves to the accountability of community or who posture themselves as having a corner on the truth. Isn't that so many of the voices in our broader part? There's no community around them, no, no people to hold them accountable for the things they say, and they act like they're the only ones who know anything that is true. Discluding, uh, uh, dismissing any voice that would, might sound a little bit different than their own. And what what Paul is saying is, if you want to know what will bring you a joyful life, if you want to know what's excellent out there, you need a community of people who love you. Not the best podcast. <laughs> Not the right TV show with this really smart mind who's finally got it. No, you need people who love you. And thirdly and most importantly, what you need is a God who is committed to you all the way to the end. So in verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right, Paul starts this letter to this church saying, if you started out with faith in Jesus, I am certain this ends with your perfection before the Lord Jesus Christ. He will not quit on you. 
Despite the dumb things you'll do and say, the mistakes you'll make, the, thing, the people you'll frustrate, God will never get worn out and tired with you. He is committed to you all the way until, until the end. And ultimately, church, our job is to make that idea believable. By being people in community who look at other Christians, other people in this community, and say, I don't, listen, you may say weird things, you may do weird things, you may act in, in weird ways. I'm committed to you all the way to the end. Because I believe for everyone in this room, if your faith is in Christ, the work God started in you, he will finish. And I get to help. I get to be part of that. And you get to be part of that with, with me. Because ultimately, what, what, what the deepest, most rock-solid source of joy for any of us is when, when we fall down, when we fail, when we make a mistake, when we're no longer someone that anyone should be glad to be around. And let's be honest, we all have those days when no one should be glad to be around us. We need to know at that moment when we've fallen down and we look up that there are people still looking at us, their face lighting up. They're still glad to be with us, right? Because at some point you're going to ask, is anyone still glad to be with me? And the church should always make that answer yes. Because that's God's answer towards us in Jesus Christ. It's why he went to a cross. It's why he was buried. It's why he was raised to new life. So that you could know Numbers 6 is not just some interesting ancient promise that some UCLA professor would one day stumble upon through his brain science research about what gives us joy. No, Numbers 6 is a promise that when God enters into a covenant with you, and he has through Jesus Christ, his posture, he's not tired of you. He's not worn out with you. He's not tired of being around you. He's committed to you all the way towards the end. And so we can say the words of number six with fresh hope and promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord's face be lifted up towards you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we all need to, to believe that your posture towards us is that you're glad to be with us. Even this evening, you are, you are present among us and you are glad to be here among your people. And we need to experience that, God. So I pray we already did experience that through eating together and hopefully laughing together and being with one another. Hopefully that, that, that joy, it's real in this, this moment. But God, we need it even now from you. And so as we sing, as we prepare to take communion in a moment, God, would, you, would your face just shine on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.